and welcome to the Miko Bits show. And I'm your host, Miko Bits. And today I have an exciting show for you. It's David Snyder from the Lit Protocol. So Lit Protocol is working on some very exciting developer infrastructure for Web3. And it involves uh, NFTs as well as fungible token access control mechanisms. So this is a foundational developer layer uh, just for uh, sake of disclosure, uh, my fund, Gumi Crypto's Capital, is invested in Lit Protocol. So, just so you all know. Um, and uh, I guess without further ado, uh, here's David. Thanks for joining the Miko Bits show. Thanks, Miko. Uh, really excited to be here. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Yeah, absolutely. So, I always open the same way, which is, uh, you know, what is the problem? solved by your project mm -hmm. yeah there's a few ways to look at this either at the application level or at the infrastructure level um i can give you an anecdote of how we arrived at this solution and and the problem we were trying to specifically solve and then can talk you through a couple other kind of problem cases that decentralized access control solves um about a year and a half ago my co-founder chris uh said hey david look at this and it was an HTML NFT. And at the time we were running in uh, 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 what you see is what you get NFT marketplace. And for me, that was the light bulb moment it was like, oh, of course you can point uh, an NFT at an HTML file. And in a way I kind of like fell, um, conceptually fell inside of the NFT frame and was like, these things aren't just video screens or picture frames. These are private browser windows that exist in a platformless um, uh, type of way. And then so that begged the obvious next question, which is what is the type of infrastructure that we need to create to make that statement true? And that's how we landed at decentralized access control. So to describe the problem in a more general sense, basically, uh, if you think about um, a user's or an individual's or, or an organization like a DAO's, uh, uh, blockchain history and wallet holdings as credentials. Um, and you have a bunch of resources that are not on chain, whether it's encrypted files on decentralized storage or uh, live streams hosted by um, a, a centralized CDN. How do you take that on-chain credential and basically treat it as the access key or token to that off-chain resource? And bridging that gap is where decentralized access control fits. I think this is a really big deal. And I think uh, one of the reasons why we should think about it this way is that one of the things that fungible tokens provide for so-called Web3 is mechanisms for things like payment, right? But the thing that's very interesting is, is right now what we're limited in buying is we're limited in buying kind of on-chain assets, right? So the thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, what if every possible other thing or access to anything could be, you know, something that people could use these, you know, beautiful payment rails to buy, right? So, you know, you could buy access or, you know, you, you could basically, or, you know, and obviously there's so many ways to play with this technology, uh, you know, so for example, you could have, um, you know, an NFT represent access to, uh, you know, gated chat rooms or, web conferences or any, you know, anything, anything uh, you can imagine. So, you know, I guess for me, like, what are the top three uh, things that, that you're working on that, you know, I think relate to, um, you know, enabling people to, to gain access through having 
uh, on-chain conditions. Yeah, uh, excellent. So um, there's something unique about this uh, decentralized access control network uh, that we're, we're working on here, and that is that uh, the network itself also is maintaining a secret. And so what I mean by that is this isn't just a validator network that says we're confirming the credential as a trusted party, and then that is, and then like telling a service provider. So um, at the top of that list is the capacity to do access control to encrypted information. And that has a couple kind of different sub implications, whether it's an organization that wants to uh, host their data on decentralized storage and use an array, an updatable array of uh, addresses in a smart contract, essentially as the ACL or access control list, that type of capacity is, is, is super exciting and has a lot of implication and kind of uh, how can individuals own their, own their own data type of way. Um, and, and, and as mentioned, this, the same thing also applies to individuals. Uh, so if you think about when you go into your Google settings and um, you see the list of all of the applications that you've authorized to kind of view your Google data, it starts to get really interesting when instead of you telling Google, hey, let vendor A use my Google data, if that data is yours and self-sovereign, and you're basically giving the right to a vendor to decrypt some of your data. Um, so that's a, a generalized thing, and there's a few examples in that. And then um, the other kind of two things to kind of round out the list are one, just making this so easy for developers. Uh, we've got a JavaScript SDK. There's certainly a lot of like, encryption complexity beneath the hood, and we can get into some of the architecture. Um, but we've seen teams implement this for things like uh, doing encrypted private messaging on decentralized storage in as little of, as a day. Uh, so really being able to make it just easy to implement this inside of one's application wherever they see fit. And then um, finally is kind of the capacity to connect this to Web2 apps. So uh, we built a couple reference Im implementations with like Shopify and Zoom and GatherTown and Google Drive for doing token-gated spaces or token-gated webinars. Like, and the Shopify example is you can use your on-chain credential, otherwise known as the NFTs in your wallet, as a mechanism for a discount or an exclusive drop in, uh, in, in e-commerce. So, so where can, where can people go and see some of this stuff? Yeah. Um, so kind of the, the, the showcase of the applications that are live today are at litgateway.com. And then the protocol site is at litprotocol.com. And of course, we're active in discord, hanging out there and on Twitter. Yeah, definitely uh, recommend people can go see this. So one thing that I think is amazing right now is that it's fairly obvious that our current internet infrastructure isn't meeting our needs. Uh, one of the things people can do is they can go onto the dark web and they can download a file with 8 billion name password pairs on it, right? So the idea that we currently have this beautiful role-based access control mechanism for the internet called, you know, name password pairs, you know, and that these things are being used on like a thousand websites and no one can remember their passwords. So they're either insanely insecurely repeating the same password everywhere, or they're using a password manager, which is basically some kind of really insane 
kind of mechanism to mitigate how stupidly this is designed, right? So, you know, I think the 8 billion name password pairs you can buy, you know, on the dark web, you know, is very indicative that, that this is just broken, right? So in a sense, the intranet for Web3 could be based on something like uh, Lit Protocol, right? Which is the idea that there are places that you just can't randomly stumble into, you know, or, or even crack your way into, right? And all of this is based on blockchain tech. That means that it's insanely adversarial and rugged. And, you know, so can you talk a little bit about sort of like the cryptographic uh, security of your system? Yeah, so the um, I think there's a couple of really interesting points that you mentioned in there that we can also unpack. Um, as it relates to security, there's basically uh, two core layers of the security. One, um, when the network kind of uh, generates a secret, uh, it does so with something called distributed key generation. And then the, the, the secret shares are stored across the nodes of the network using BLS threshold cryptography. So get into a little bit of a yeah. technical architecture here. Um, uh, basically, like if you upload a file to IPFS, you'll do client-side encryption. So it is encrypted in your browser. And then that generates basically a data key or an access key, which you immediately encrypt with the LIP protocol network public key. And then that key is destroyed. And then you associate a set of access control conditions. For example, anybody who owns a given NFT, those are hashed and stored. And then let's say I own the NFT that you wanted to give access to that file. When I come along later, I sign a message with my wallet that's broadcast to the nodes of the LIP protocol. You kind of think about it like BitTorrent where there's a bunch of different parties that are responsible for a certain part of the operation. Those nodes call down to the blockchain, check the credential, ensure that I have the NFT, and then using using BLS, basically each of those nodes creates a decryption share, and um, BLS is a is a is a, a, a threshold based implementation, and then each of those nodes send the decryption share to me. I aggregate the shares above the threshold, and then can reproduce the initial data key and access that content that you've encrypted. And then another layer of security that we have in here is um, all of the operations on the nodes are taking place inside of a secure execution environment as well. Uh, but I also want to come back to something that you mentioned around like the notion of the universal login and certainly where we're at with like kind of sign in with Ethereum or sign in with unstoppable domains or sign in with ENS is very, very cool. But if you think about how when you do sign in with Facebook or sign in with Google, it's not just validating you are who you say you are, but there's also some other information about you. It's like, I am who I say I am. And also here's some relevant metadata that the application needs in order to be able to provide the service uh, that I require. So I'm really excited about the what's happening with kind of the sign in with wallet today and uh and, and think there's some more kind of steps in progress um, to move in that direction and, and and these are some of the things that we're excited about like as a project as well yeah and you know i, I like the advanced cryptography you know obviously bls threshold uh encryption you know obviously as is kind of traditional for the cryptography schemes you know a lot of these cryptography three-letter acronyms actually represent the creators, Correct. the mathematicians, et cetera. So the B in 
is uh, Dan Bonet at Stanford, a pretty uh, legendary blockchainer and, you know, very awesome cryptographer. So, you know, BLS threshold cryptography, uh, you know, for those of you who are curious, like it's used fairly extensively in Ethereum too. Uh, it's also used extensively in Credo, which is another one of our kind of um, multi-party compute uh, driven uh, backend systems. Uh, so, you, you know, we definitely, uh, you know, love to geek out on, on the crypto, uh, on the proper cryptography side of things. Uh, but, uh, you know, to me, I think having sort of a cryptographic first class access control, you know, in a, in a fully properly decentralized way means that we can truly build the vision for a real decentralized Web3, right? So, you know, this isn't kind of one of these fake uh, web three centralized web three type of a deal. So I guess one of the things I'd love for you to comment on is a little bit about, um, you know, things like social graph and decentralized social networks. Cause I think there's some really interesting applications there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean the, you know, it, it, it's, I think a, an interesting lens is to ask like, what's the most valuable asset on the internet? And this is a, a gross oversimplification, but you can almost think about NFTs as taking assets that existed inside of games and then making them quote platform lists, pulling them outside of the gaming platform and making them a piece of uh, uh, basically merchandise in, in many cases that uh, an individual can own, not through legal contracts, but own through encryption. Um, so what you're getting at is quite important because it's, uh, I don't think it's too far of a leap to, if you ask the question, what's the most valuable asset on the internet to say that it's the social graph. And so the momentum around being able for each individual to take their node, their like list of friends and connections uh, that they have and have that something that they own and is self-sovereign. And again, they own through encryption um, is, yeah, is, is, is kind of the momentum in the direction that we're headed in. And what's nice there is the notion of access control basically means that you can consent to different individuals to decrypt your posts on whatever platform you choose or consent to these applications uh, to use some of the data in this kind of like uh, login with the crypto wallet momentum we were just talking about a moment ago. Um, but really it's it, a, a lot of the story is just around in this next kind of epoch of the internet, what it looks like for the individual to really claim and hold some of the power. Uh, and um, this is less of a technical point, but one thing that I'm really excited to see unfold over kind of the next decade is just the psychological implication of when you're walking around on the web, moving from being like, I'm a row in somebody's database is, is a much more kind of subservient position from an, a, 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 like an authority dynamic to, I have something that's mine here and I'm letting them use it and can pull it away uh, as I see fit and, and if I'd like to. Yeah, I, I would love to kind of throw out one of the words that you you were using, right? Which to me, I think, to, so just to let the audience in a little bit on some of this culture, right? Which is that one of the things that people really kind of have a funny reaction to in the cryptographic segment is really when you meet kind of hardcore cryptographers, right? And obviously there's sort of enterprise cryptography, you know, RSA conference and all the suits and the ties, but you know, we're really talking about kind of like Mohawk, like cypherpunk cryptography, you know? And like, when you go there, like you meet lots of funny people who are like playing with the different 
consent frameworks and paradigms, right? So, I mean, it, you know, it gets a little spooky and people kind of like think a lot about kind of like how insanely adversarial the infrastructure is. But the thing that's so amazing about what David's saying is that there's another culture coming from open source software, which is kind of completely only, it's sort of consent only, right? So in a sense, like, you know, really intense cryptography supports really intense cons consent under really adversarial circumstances, right? So, you know, and when I say under really adversarial circumstances, the thing that people need to understand is that infrastructure has to support the worst case, the most hyper adversarial case, because it's infrastructure, right? So you don't look at a highway and say, oh, you know, my car is really light. So you, you overbuilt this bridge. It's too, you know, because because my car only needs a certain amount of bridge and you just built a bridge that could handle a lot more than my car, right? It doesn't work like that. Like if you're building infrastructure, it has to support the most adversarial case. And what you're saying is the result of well-built cryptographic infrastructure is that everyone gets to consent, right? They get to consent about, oh, you can use my data or no way, like you cannot use my data, right? And that 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 kind of consent, I think, isn't... It isn't available. And when you look at this idea of hyper adversariality, the idea that I can go to the dark web and buy 8 billion name password pairs, do you think any of those people consented for hackers to steal their passwords? Like, no, right? So is hyper adversary, like, we have to point at the at the reality of hyper adversariality, right? Like, that's, that's what's happening. And that's why we're failing, right? So, you know, in a sense, like, this is where the new internet has to, how it has to be built, right? And it has to be built with the right kind of mindset. So I guess one of the things I'm really curious about, and I ask everyone is kind of like, what's what's your thing? Like, you know, what what's your like uh, superpower? Like, you know, how do you, how do you see, you know, the, the role of, uh, you know, yourself in this, in this whole thing? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump back into that in a second. I just would love to comment on something that you just mentioned. It's, it was really well articulated. And I mean, I think with this talk of um, uh, the adversarial parties and encryption, um, it's easy to kind of get stuck in a line of questioning that goes, oh, but people don't really care about privacy. People use Facebook Messenger and not Signal. Cool. And um, to me, like that is not incorrect um you know there's like the, the 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 notion of convenience is totally the 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 driver of how uh, many people will operate um but there's another incentive mechanism coming along that we know is picking up which is the notion of tokenization and you know there's a new breed of entrepreneurs that basically like right now you make a company you can become profitable you can be acquired or you can ipo where you may or may not be profitable at that state and now there's this fourth option emerging, which is exit to community. And so in this kind of like exit to community lens, uh, there seems to be an emerging idea, again, really aligned with the open source ideals and resilient infrastructure around how to not create that data honeypot that can be hacked, how to create some level of privacy through obscurity. And some of that involves giving the user um, sovereignty and the right to consent to different platforms to access their data. Um, and so what I'm really excited about is that like stakeholders getting paid for use in their network through exit to community being the cultural lever that drives privacy rather than privacy being the thing that we all want to achieve. So we can like 
bring in privacy into our society through um, through user owned networks, uh, which is which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of kind of my superpower, um, jumping back to the question, um, the I, I, the 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 metaphor I like is kind of like the classic definition of the entrepreneur, which is how can you take a really pie in the sky vision, which is kind of where we're talking about, and um and yep. and think about where the lightning touches the ground. What is V zero of that thing? What are the first three steps of that thing? And um that that type of exercise, uh, whether it's for stuff that we're working on with our with our awesome team or when speaking with uh, friends. Um, I, I really love that kind of thinking. I'm excited to hear that because, you know, the metaphor of lightning is sort of very singularly beautiful for me, right? Because I, I often talk to entrepreneurs about what I call heaven and earth, right? Heaven is sort of the future. We've taken over the world. Web3 is built on top of like fully decentralized cryptographic authentication and, uh, you know, access control, right? So like that's heaven. And of course, you know, but earth is like, okay, so what are you building today, right? And so like, you know, e e practical execution in the now that kind of creates this future, right? And so I think this idea of lightning is such an amazing idea, because in a way, it's sort of like, how how heaven and earth are kind of joined together in the in a moment, right? So that that's a that's really this kind of a, a stroke of lightning. So uh, one of the questions I always ask too is really related to sort of your own current motivation and inspiration, you know, so, you know, I, I, what are, what are the kind of, you know, and this can be personal or professional, sure. you know, but I would love to kind of get the, the stuff that's juicy for you. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, this being able to, and it, I, I think you really nailed it with kind of, uh, open source ethos and, and, and culture and being able to kind of like build something that everybody can potentially use and that can let them as an individual kind of claim and hold more, you know, power in air quotes, whatever, however you kind of define that, that is, that is really deeply motivating. And, um, you know, in the, uh, in, in, in 2015 and, and 16, I was also kind of reading about the notion of platform cooperatives and Ethereum at the same time. And so we've been talking a lot about sovereignty and data control um, which is a big piece, uh, largely under like the bucket of decentralization. And then a highly related bucket is, um, is kind of the mimetic energy, if you will, around coordination. And there's clearly a relationship, uh, between decentralization and coordination. They're not the same thing. There's quite the dance going on there. Um, and so, so there's, there, there's a lot of motivation there around just like building new systems. Um, I might not get the quote exactly right, but uh, you know, Buckminster Fuller has this quote that goes along something along the lines of like, uh, if you want to see people do something new in the world, don't tell them what to do. Give them the tool that lets them do the new thing. Again, that's that, that's not verbatim, but that's the general idea. Yeah, I do. I do like the flavor of this. You know, I, I think that it's the future is definitely, uh, you know, in the hands of these kind of builders, you know, and I think for me, like it, it you know, I, I like, I like this kind of imaginative invocation of Buckminster Fuller, who, you know, absolutely is a source of inspiration for lots of creators. So, um, you know, here's a, here's a, here's one is, you know, who, who do you want to recognize, you know, with a, with a shout out. So, you know, in terms of like community members, uh, 
you know, a, a sort of uh, technology providers, you know, individuals, like, you know, who, who, who do you think is a, you know, uh, who deserves some uh, additional recognition? Yeah, definitely want to shout out my uh, co-founder, uh, Chris Cassano. Um, so we, we have been on, you know, this is a, a really exciting idea and we're, uh, and the whole team is, is really excited to work on this, but um, Chris and I probably iterated through a half dozen different concepts uh, for two and a half years, um, which was is, is is a non-trivial thing to keep going and 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 uh, you know have faith around. Okay, something interesting is going to happen, but we're not exactly sure what the path and being able to kind of like hold that uncertainty throughout that process. Um, I yeah ha, has made us uh, quite close as as as. Uh, as business partners. Yeah, that to me is such an interesting pattern. And I think you're describing, you know, sort of the word faith, right? And in a way, to me, like, you know, when we talk, we, we talk about kind of the creation of consent, and you talk about freedom, right? So one of the fascinating things is that, you know, individual freedom, I think of as like, I do whatever I want, right? But like collective freedom comes more into the realm of things like we make the rules, you know, slash together, right? So in a sense, like having a partnership like that is is very unique because it sort of becomes, I would call it like a conviction flywheel. So I think I think you created something pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, I think there's 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 also an interesting relationship between like faith and persistence i'm also like uh i i you know less less time these days but have done some long backpacking trips in my life and there's just something to be said even when you know you're soaked from head to toe just putting one foot in front of the other um and uh uh yeah but the, it, there, there's it's just fun in a way to just kind of keep going in in the face of the uncertainty um but uh there's a like in backpacking um when it's like raining and you've got like splinters and stuff like that they there's a term that they they call type two fun um like type one fun the weather is great everything's awesome like type two fun everything sucks but if you can still manage to smile like it's kind of interesting and fun in its own right too that's very uh, interesting and important right because i think the journey of entrepreneurship it's without question has ups and downs, right? So there's a very strong kind of personal uh, attitude of perseverance. You know, I think ultra high conviction, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've been fortunate to be uh, privy to is sort of our weekly calls, right? So I think one of the things that's really beautiful that I see happening is that in a way, like you're in more like the kind of, uh, you're on the ridge and you're getting the views now, right? In the sense that, you know, that it, this isn't the kind of trudge through the dark forest with all the bugs, you know, that this is actually, you know, reaching the point where you're starting to see a lot of vistas, right? So, you know, I, I think the excitement is pretty tangible right now. Yeah, I really, I like that metaphor a lot. Um, uh, and it kind of like, there's something about being on the ridge or having the macro view you know, if you think about like standing on top of a ridge and looking down into a valley, you can clearly delineate where the line of the fog is. But then you go down in the valley and you're in it. The line doesn't exist. It, it the the delineation yeah. or, or or the insight maybe only exists from uh, the top of the ridge. Uh, to kind of extend that metaphor a little bit. 
No, I really appreciate this. And it's especially poignant for me because like, I remember back when uh, we were first talking about uh, my fun Gumi getting involved in Lit Protocol and you and I actually went to the Mont Montara beach, uh, you know, and we took a hike actually up a, you know, basically up a ridge and, you know, we actually got some astonishing views uh, from, from up high. So, you know, it really kind of like makes me remember that. Uh, so, so one of the things that I think the segues beautifully into is kind of the big idea. So we've already kind of touched on this and I think it's a really uh, I think of you as a visionary founder you know but to me like succinctly put you know Steve Jobs really came to the world with this idea that was as simple as personal computing like that was all really he started with and he really kept on going and I think his legacy is for computing to become even more personal you know probably a little too personal right but I think that you know it's really just an amazing story arc, you know, to be so correct about such a big idea. So, you know, I guess the thing I'm curious about is sort of what is your big idea? You know, yeah. and how, how do you see this playing out in the in the future? Yeah, maybe it's a, a, a little bit less wholesome, but like the word that comes up here is 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 triage. Um, and uh, <laughs> what, what I mean by that is like, there's a situation that's happening that is like, uh, non-optimal and non-savory in a lot of ways in terms of um the treatment of people's data uh you know like climate is a is an example of this it's not like how can we um get to the shining city on top of the hills so it's like how can we even course correct um and so uh you know in terms of the big idea um i'll give you kind of like a comparison so tim berners lee has this project called solid and, um, and, you know, he invents the web and basically goes, uh, this is great. And then all of a sudden, this isn't so great. Wouldn't it be great if everybody had their own personal server uh, that they could consent data from? And I would say, like, the general momentum around Web3 totally sees the same problem. But instead of going, you should rent a server from Amazon and own it in a contractual point of way, just use public storage and own your quote unquote server, or we internally call them a, a, like a hub, you know, not through paper contracts, but through encryption. And so the notion that somebody, um, uh, not just their on-chain information and their ability to move the assets in and out of their wallet and call functions from their wallet, but the idea that somebody has a self-sovereign space uh, that is their space that they're granting consent in and out of. Um, I think that that that's the big idea. Yeah, I I really think that that is it's a tremendous idea, right? Because I think for me, you know, when when you think about problems, right? One of the problems in our world right now is that in some ways there is a lack of integrity in the world. You know, and I think that this lack of integrity really often takes the form of these externalities, right? So, you know, when you look at an economic externality, it's really just some organization or group that's trying to kind of do their own thing, but that they're really ignoring the negative results of what they're doing, you know, that's visited on everyone else, right? So obviously things like global warming, you know, and, and kind of we're at a, in a 
planet that's rapidly approach, approaching 8 billion people, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, like the limits of individual freedom become even more noticeable where like, you know, people's individual freedom starts to immediately impinge upon consent and the rights of others. Right. So, so, you know, to me, like when you talk about kind of like, of like bringing the world into more integrity, you know, I think that, you know, in a sense, the two things, you know, when you use the word coordination earlier that I think are exciting is that what we're really talking about is kind of coordination of consent right which is related to things like dow voting and things like that so coordination of consent is super interesting but like what may be even more interesting is coordination of financial energy right Mm -hmm. and and coordination of people's values right Mm -hmm. so you know if you look at the idea of tokenized externalities you know there's a thousand projects probably half of them are more fraudulent that are doing carbon tokens, you know, think things of that nature, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, saying a lot of them are fraudulent is, isn't kind, but you know, some of them are inept as well. But, you know, out of that big grab bag, there may actually be some viable solutions, you know, and, yeah. and for me, you know, if you think about tokenized externalities, it means that people's consent, and their values, as well as their kind of intentions and votes you know and all of this stuff becomes coordinated with financial energy right and yeah. that, that part i think is pretty interesting yeah no i think this like what i participated in constitution dow and like as this kind of early use case around coordinated um uh, uh coordinated financial collective action um i think is only getting more exciting and certainly like let's all get together and buy something is one like function or mechanism of let's all get together um, to, to kind of like tie it back to the notion of having a self-sovereign hub of your data that enables the kind of collected collective action where you can say, hey, we're this group of 100,000 people and all of our data is portable. We're using your platform today, but like you don't own us in the same way that Facebook owns their users. We're all going to decide together to do um, financial collective action because we're going to pool our money and fund this competitor to yours because they have some kind of rule or system that is more aligned with our values. So I think like, certainly let's go out and buy a thing is super cool. And then um, more sophisticated actions of what you can do with the pooling of financial capital will will emerge. And I do see some of that being built on the notion of, of individuals' data being portable as and, and, and private. Um, as like these more sophisticated use cases start to come into uh into the world yeah and i think to me so i love that you're shouting out constitution dow we actually had as our previous guest and as yet unreleased uh miko bits episode with uh, graham novak who tells the story of constitution dow and the kind of crazy seven day coordination of like you know, 40 some million dollars worth of, you know, community energy, you know, towards buying the constitution. So, you know, look out for that episode. But like, to me, the thing that I think is really intriguing about this kind of world that you're depicting, you know, is, is absolutely one that is kind of inseparable from the vision of the metaverse. So I, I, you know, I really do resist the term metaverse, but what I really am starting to talk about is sort of, uh, human centric or user centric transmedia. Right. And, you know, obviously when we talk about centrism, there's sort of fan centric transmedia or there's gamer centric transmedia. And so there's 
different kinds of cultural centers for transmedia, right? And, you know, to me, when I think about it from that lens, then the thing that becomes really important is that like the facets of identity really become wrapped around the user, right? So the, there's the user, then there are their identities, and then the identities actually allow them to appear in environments, you know? And so what better way of thinking about things like NFTs is basically like almost like avatars, but also as keys, right? So in a sense, like, you know, this is all inseparable from the metaverse in the sense that someone can be like, well, I want to appear in this environment as a bored ape, and I wanna to go to a different environment and appear there as a crypto punk, right? And obviously if the key, if the NFT itself is actually being used as an access key, then you suddenly have authenticity, right? Suddenly it's like, oh no, that's really that, that's CryptoPunk 12. Like that, like it, that is actually the one, right? And the environment enforces it and the gateway enforces it. So I, I think that's, you know, a wonderful uh, kind of vision. It, it, it makes it real for sure. And um, yeah, and it's just like, I think that the, the, the whole idea that like uh, the notion of digital ownership um, and, and this public credential system and decentralized ledger that we have in blockchains, it's, it's really, uh, I, I think like the term red pill, you know, is, 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 is an apt one. It's really just, uh, an expansive kind of new view or lens and, um, and an exciting one. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think coordination coordination of consent, coordination of financial power, measurement of financial externalities, the emergence of a, a sort of a future-proof, cryptographically secure, you know, defended against this hyper-adversarial environment, you know, this new infrastructure for what people are calling Web3, you know, is truly sort of uh, going to create an exponential solution. And I think the exponentiality and the exponential rise of the economic value in blockchain can actually serve as a mechanism to face some of the exponential challenges, right? So when you talked about triage, you know, when you think about solving exponential challenges like global climate change and these, you know, these types of things, like we definitely need to look for, you know, really exponential solutions. I mean, it yeah. turns out that the kind of normal approaches don't seem to be having a sufficient effect in the sufficient timeline. Yeah, no, there's definitely some pretty interesting ideas kicking around um, as it relates to to this type of thing. And I think like, um, you know, the other thing is like climate is a big one. How do you price in externalities? And obviously income inequality is uh, quite high to the top of that list of these kind of exponential problems. And like, you know, uh, the, this notion of user-owned networks, you hear people talk about, what would it look like if Uber was owned by the drivers? And it's like, oh, but, you know, Uber pays the drivers and YouTube pays the creators. But right now, like the, the main value is created in the network effect value, is at the platform value. So I really think, and not to use the word key in too many different ways, but the key to this thing is kind of the builders and the entrepreneurs and the founders um, finding a level of values alignment and hopefully being able to see the forest through the trees and recognize that by giving up some of the authority and the take rate to the users, to the stakeholders in the future, if it's a good product market fit, and obviously there's a lot of things, likely you will build a much bigger network that will have more impact 
and potentially have more of a financial upside as well. Um, and so to me, that's the thing that I'm really tracking closely and, and, and looking at and talking to a lot of uh, my peers. And I'm really optimistic um, in, in terms of that kind of uh, that kind of, of, of culture around user owned networks. And, you know, even NFT projects are a great kind of simplistic example of these where it's like, okay, it's functionally a membership card and there's cool stuff you can do with it. And there's an in-group and an out-group. Um, but the all of the individuals are having the economic benefit and it's the core team that is building the infrastructure, you know, making it work in the metaverse with access control, using lit protocol to have uh, exclusive merch drops on, on Shopify, whatever it might be. Uh, and so you've got three or four people who are doing the work and 6,000 holders who are, who are benefiting benefiting from it. So I kind of, it, it, it's a, it's, it's nice to see that because that in that, um, and a lot of people say like, oh, this is so insane. This money is wild. But from the lens of all of the users in the network, being able to generate value and the founders basically, and the, the, the teams behind these NFT projects sharing that and saying like, this is your IP. You can do with it what you want, as long as you hold the token. Um, that's, that, that feels like the right energy. Uh, but if you couldn't already tell, I'm I'm an optimist. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that you know builders have to have optimism, otherwise they'll kind of throw up their hands, you know. So I I think uh, you know we we are we are kind of all biased towards builders, and you know I think that that you know it's it's really uh, admirable what you're doing. So uh, you know I think we've come up on to the end of the show, but, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I just want to give you a quick send off question around sort of your launch. So, you know, this video will be released concurrently. So you, I think you're able to say like, what is it that, uh, was announced? Yeah. Uh, so, the launch? uh, we are uh, announcing a, a fundraise. Um, Miko and his team are participating, uh, a, a, along with a bunch of other, uh, aligned investors and contributors who are, who are quite aligned with this notion of emergent value through decentralization and tokenization and sovereignty. So really excited about that. And as part of that, um, if you're listening to this within maybe a couple of days of the launch on Lit Gateway, we have a uh, NFT giveaway for the launch. And once you claim that NFT, which is totally free, there's a bunch of use cases that you can see. You can use that NFT to unlock token gated videos and spaces in Gather Town um, and files and merch on Shopify. So we've kind of built that as a reference implementation and it's free to claim. There's 10,000 of them. Um, so that's, that's a pretty fun way to, to get involved and, and claim a role in Discord as well. Yeah. And I, you know, just my final editorial commentary, right, which is that in a way like the future is a bit uncertain, but you know, what I can tell you is, is that, you know, if you are a holder of one of these first 10,000, you know, free uh, lit gateway tokens, like, you know, there's any number of pretty exciting uh, potential offers and experiences that could be open to you in, in the future. So, you know, I definitely encourage you to go claim your free NFT and be one of the first 10,000 lit gateway uh, population, you know, people populating this new metaverse of uh, Web3 access control. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the kind of the immediate benefits is uh, when you claim the NFT, you can click on it. It's HTML NFT kind of functions as a portal. And once you're inside of the portal, we've got a collaborative pixel art project in there. 
and then 30 days after the launch, we'll turn that into a one of one NFT and uh, gift it to one of the, the contributors um, at, at random, uh, which would be pretty fun too. I love it. I think that'll be fun. There's an art angle, there's an access angle. And I think to me, if you're involved at all in kind of the NFT world, you're really going to want to play with this technology so you can understand that an NFT is more than just a JPEG, but that it actually is something that gives you access to a whole world either on you know Web3 or even on in Web2 systems. So uh, definitely check it out. So uh, David, thanks so much for joining the Miko Bits show. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Miko.